Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in and what a lot we've got to get through this week. I don't know where to start or where to I know where I'm going to start. Thanking all of those who tuned in to the live stream show last week. Uh, we got loads of people tuning in. We got more than 100 live questions uh, during it. And, and for those of you who weren't there, and if you weren't there, why? Outrageous. I know you've got lots to do and the running and the wine and hot baths, but this is a priority. Anyway, uh, what we did was I reflected a bit. It was the day of Biden's inauguration. And I looked at the Kinnock speech that Biden stole famously for his earlier candidacy in the late 1980s, the Kinnock speech from the 1987 election. And it was fascinating for me to dig it out and read again. It is brilliant, whatever you think of Kinnock. It, it, there was a poetry to it. It's the one about why was I the first Kinnock of a thousand generation of Kinnocks to go to university. And it was a poetic attempt to regain an argument about the state which Labour had lost to Margaret Thatcher. He was trying to show that the state could be used to fulfil potential rather than, as she argued, to basically stifle anything uh, and, and it was a sort of force against freedom. She won hands down that ideological debate. It was so interesting that Biden stole it in his ideological battle against the Reagan America of the time. Anyway, we talked about that a lot. That got us on to Keir Starmer and that got us on to Brexit and then some fantastic questions. I didn't get time to answer them all, but thank you all for taking part. For those of you, it's still there. It, it doesn't disappear once the live event has ended. It's still on the King's Place website, I think. Um, anyway, the next one is on February the 17th, and you've all got to be there for that one. And you can get your tickets now so you can put it in the diary. Something to look forward to. I mean, you're not be, you won't be partying that night. Well, maybe you will, because this is where I'm going to start today for my spiel before we come on to some of your brilliant questions, which are wholly relevant to topical situations as well. But I was just before recording, I had a quick look on Twitter, dangerous thing to do. And there was a report from Boris Johnson's Paul interview that he gave uh, on, you know, sometimes he does sort of Paul statements on the latest situations. And during it, he said that he hadn't ruled out lifting some constraints before February the 15th. And I just almost spontaneously wrote on Twitter, uh, he never learns. The recurring pattern of lifting constraints too early, failing to impose constraints early enough, recur. And even if he doesn't mean it, it's part of another recurring pattern that he over-promises in the hope of pleasing part of his constituency. He's clearly in a panic at the moment that some Tory MPs are saying, what about schools? When are you going to reopen them? When are you going to lift this? When are you going to lift that? These people who live in a kind of fantasy world where the pandemic has magically almost disappeared, or people who live in a fantasy world where they do not recognise that it is the pandemic that is the threat to the economy and not the lockdown 
aimed at addressing the pandemic. But, you know, we talked the other day in passing about the importance of the word consequence. And he does not get it, Johnson. He does not think through the consequences of his words and actions. That is a classic example, you know, even holding out the possibility of lifting some constraints before February the 15th, when even though infection rates are falling at last, they are from such a high point. Anything that opens up soon risks getting that killer rampaging around the country again. But he wants to give that hope, mainly to his own MPs who are starting to stir again. He's too weak to take them on, so he wants to offer some sort of light that things will be lifted. Consequences. What would happen if he were to lift some constraints? What will happen if, having given them some hope he might, he doesn't, which is much more likely? He never poses these kinds of questions before speaking and acting. There's almost a fear of working out what the consequence will be. Instead, the pattern for Johnson, both in his private and public life, is to do something not think through what the consequence might be, face the consequences, and then try and blust your way through again. And this has been a theme in my sort of reading and talks and with politicians and others over the last few days. There was a brilliant piece, I don't know if any of you read it, in the FT on Saturday, which did a behind-the-scenes look at the build-up to the trade deal unveiled on Christmas Eve. You know the deal which uh, Johnson described as cakeism. It's a Christmas present for everybody. We've had our cake and eaten it. And one of the things that the FT reported is that every now and again, someone from within number 10 or the Treasury or the Cabinet Office would say, are we going to do an economic analysis of the likely hard deal that was being negotiated by Frosty, good old Frosty with his fish, Frosty, who incidentally comes across wholly unsurprisingly as out of his depth and spectacularly naive in his machismo about the negotiations when he was being outmaneuvered. Sometimes he outmaneuvered himself, trying to get a bad deal in some respects. Anyway, there was no attempt to do a forensic analysis of the economic consequences of the deal being negotiated, the outline of which has been pretty clear for months, well before the signatures were put on it in, on Christmas Eve. Great Christmas present to you all. Nothing. And we know why. He didn't want to reflect on the consequences of what he was doing. He wanted to get through this phase, hail it as a great achievement, and then face the consequences when they arose. And aren't they arising speedily? And this is such a depressing recurrence. Leaders have a tendency to repeat past mistakes in a quite eerie way. In the 1970s, one prime minister after another imposed incomes policies, which never worked. They created far more chaos than they were uh, seeking to remedy. But each Prime Minister knowing and having argued against incomes policy precisely because of the chaos, imposed one and then faced nightmarish chaos. But with Johnson, it's with less excuse 
because we're talking about relatively recent times with the pandemic. Too late in March with the lockdown. Too late in the autumn with the lockdown. Too late in imposing constraints over Christmas. Have a jolly Christmas. We'll make it a small one, but have a jolly one. You know. And then suddenly, nope, too late. And the other thing, by the time you hear this, probably they will have announced finally uh, new constraints on travel and with people coming into Britain having to uh, quarantine in hotels. They've known about these variants for more than a week and yet nothing. On Friday at the Drowning Street press conference, Johnson said that he had no intention of changing the nature of the lockdown, but they would look at further travel constraints. So if he knew on Friday that there is a case for them, why not impose them then? Instead, we got those photographs of Heathrow Airport looking like a football match on a cup final day. People crammed. And some of them will be bringing these variants into the country before the constraints have been imposed too late. But the consequences seem to him, I think, like distant mist on the horizon, not to be really reflected upon. In this case, it's particularly perverse because the way out of this nightmare for Johnson uh, is a successful vaccine programme. And that after that vaccine programme, people in the UK are broadly, as far as it's possible to be, immune from this bloody virus. Therefore, he needs to stop these variants from getting in. And he knows that. But he cannot act fast. Talk about, you know, the great one of the great themes of Hamlet, delay. Why did Hamlet delay doing what his father had asked him to do, which is to basically kill Claudius? And it's a, there are many answers to that question. I'm not entirely sure what the answer to the delay with Johnson is, beyond indecisiveness and this indifference to consequence, an almost inability to think ahead. And I've probably mentioned this before, forgive me, but one of the arts of leadership is this capacity to think through consequences. It was something Blair and Brown were good at, they would always, before making a policy decision, think through what would follow from it. And that, on the whole, is what any sensible leader does. They get their advisors together and say, OK, if we say this or do this, X will happen, Y might happen, the media will say this, voters will respond by doing this. You go through the, all the kind of possible consequences. He doesn't do consequence. Anyway, excuse the rant, I was going to talk about something completely different at the beginning, but that tweet got me going, uh, reporting his comments about the possibility of lifting constraints. I don't think he'll do it. I'd be amazed if he was stupid enough to do it. But as I say, there's another pattern, which is to promise things which you can't then do just to keep people hopeful for a day or two. And I think in this case, it was some Tory MPs. Let's now go to your questions, uh, which are fantastic. I thought we'd begin with America, uh, because that's where we ended at King's Place the other night. And it is still very interesting what's happening here. 
So let's get into some America-related questions anyway. Uh, Phil O'Dell says, Hi Steve, love the podcast. And oh, he's reading the book as well. Thank you very much. I've just watched the excellent documentary 537 about the Bush-Gore 2000 US election. At the end, it speculates that if Gore had won, as he seemingly should have, he wouldn't have gone into Iraq. If that were so, one wonders what might happen here. There are quite a few counterfactuals in the questions today. Uh, some of these tantalising what-ifs. And Phil wonders, would Blair's therefore untarnished reputation mean he might have stayed on for longer as Prime Minister? Well, for sure, if Gore had been uh, president and had not gone into Iraq, Blair wouldn't have called for him to do so. If you remember, part of his conceit uh, in the build-up to Iraq is he used to go around saying it's worse than any of you think. I believe in this. Uh, I'd be calling for this anyway. He wouldn't have been. He decided that he had no choice but to back Bush. But if Gore had been in place, there would have been no war in Iraq. And Blair's reputation unquestionably would have been uh, shinier as a result. However, Gordon Brown would have still put intense pressure on Tony Blair to go at some point within the time frame that he went anyway. And I suspect even without Iraq, he would have gone around about that time. There were parts of the party uneasy about Blair on many other matters. And with Brown determined to seize the crown, I suspect he would have gone around about the same time, but he would not have been so tormented uh, in his after prime ministerial life as he has been by Iraq, because deep down he knows the, the mistakes of Iraq and he will never be able to admit them publicly because to do so would be to say, I unnecessarily ordered British troops to war and some died unnecessarily. But I, he, he will have... He's smart enough to know about the consequence, talk about consequences, the consequences of that war, civil war in Iraq, amongst many other things. Um, an interesting uh, point from uh, Peter Landers. P oh, yeah, because Peter asked a question during the King's Place show. Uh, was the Biden accession uh, closer to a Mandela moment or the Weimar Republic moment? Anyway, I took that to mean that Weimar, it would lead to doom, because that's what happened in 1930s Germany. Mandela, although South Africa are unstable, was a bit more bright, certainly at first. Anyway, he has alerted me to his blog, and it's a very interesting blog about American politics. And he concludes in his blog, uh, which I've read, however, one aberrant presidency has demonstrated just how fragile is the balance that determines the contrast between stability and chaos. It has more or less held for a quarter of a millennium. I hope that this is the fullest extent to which it will be stretched and not collapsed. I think the next few years will be very testing and the outcome is by no means certain. So Peter is not at all sure whether it's a Weimar moment leading to some terrible catastrophe 
uh, in the United States or or a rosier one. He adds that uh, he listens to the podcast walking the towpath of the Monmouthshire Canal between Newport and Abergavenny. I wish we could all join you, Peter. That sounds that sounds a great way of uh, listening to the podcast and great blog, really great blog. Thank you for alerting it, it to me. Uh, so let's now go on to another theme, uh, related, Biden-related, sort of. Uh, and this is from Martin Powell, who says, oh, he loves the podcast. Well, that, when you say that, you always the questions always get asked. And Martin says, I was wondering what your thoughts are on the influence of the elder statesman, grandfatherly figure of Joe Biden, is on the UK, specifically our choice of prime minister at the next election. There's a lot on Boris Johnson coming up, as well as my opening thoughts. The US, you, this is very interesting from Martin. The UK and US have often chosen similar leaders. I'm thinking of the quiet, unassuming Attlee and Truman, the young, media-savvy Wilson and Kennedy, the bespeckled manager types of John Major and George Bush Sr., the fresh, politically acute third-weight leaders of Clinton and Blair, and of course the populists Trump and Johnson. Post-Covid, will a bruised and battered UK be looking for its own reassuring grandfather figure at the next election? Uh, Martin adds that he listens to recent podcasts while painting the woodwork. Right, okay, I can't get excited about that one, Martin, as a pastime to listen. I'm into walking the Monmouthshire Canal painting the woodwork. I'll leave that to you, but I'm thrilled that you're listening at the same time. It's a very good point. And of course, when you think about Keir Starmer, quite a few of the emails are critical. I've been quite critical. I kind of think in a way we need to hold our judgment on him while this pandemic is going on. It is so freakish and so hard to establish the traditional dividing lines between opposition and government at this point, that maybe we just need to hold judgment. I mean, he's got to self-isolate again, get Starmer. Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, if you're listening to the podcast before then, he'll be in his room in North London again, usually with a blank wall. Most recently, he kind of appeared draped in a Union Jack. You couldn't move from Union Jacks behind him. Bit clunky, I thought, uh, getting that red wall patriotism vote. But anyway, but of course, uh, Martin, to go back to your question, Keir Starmer hopes that the juxtaposition in the UK next time will be similar to the US chaos versus solidity. And in that... As with Biden, Starmer wins, although he probably does not want to be thought of as grandfatherly quite yet. But it is interesting how the UK follows the US so often in presidential elections. And there's no doubt, although Johnson is now uh, affecting an affinity with Biden as he did with Trump before, that Starmer's politics are closer to Biden's and his political style is closer to Biden's than uh, Johnson's. But anyway, so it's an interesting parallel. Now, Tony Ahmet has emailed, he's always suggesting ideas. And he says you could allocate a part of your podcast to a bit of light-hearted personal reflection stroke indulgence. It's all an indulgence for me. A bit of fun. Well, the whole thing should be a bit of fun, partly. Deadly serious as well, but 
with a sort of bit of fun thrown in. And he asks, as you often reflect on the qualities that a successful prime minister needs to possess, can you select the top four qualities and relate them to past present PMs to get your ultimate prime minister? So you're probably familiar with some of these. I'll come up with three now of the qualities required for a prime minister. They're themes in my book on the prime ministers. To be a successful prime minister, you need to be a teacher. You need to explain constantly why you are doing it as well as what you are doing. And the best teachers of modern times were Thatcher and Blair. It's why they won elections. They tried to make sense of what they were doing. They were, in Thatcher's case, an instinctive teacher. In Blair's case, it was partly instinct. I think it was partly learnt, almost like a barrister, and then through Alistair Campbell and others. Uh, but he became an obsessive teacher. He held more press conferences than any prime minister, trying to make sense of what he does. That's one, being a teacher. You have to have the skill to bind the values of your party, whether centre-left, centre-right, left-right, to policy, and then be a master of that policy detail. Now, obviously, again, Thatcher did that from the right, uh, she had a sense of values which were almost sort of cliches, really. I mentioned right at the beginning her attitude towards the state. Get the state off our backs, set the people free. The state stifles freedom We and all this kind of stuff. But she did turn out a load of policies which, because she was a teacher, was related to those cliches almost. And she could do policy detail. Brown's another who was a total master of policy. And he did try and link values to it. The phrases he came up with as a chancellor, and the current shadow chancellor needs to come up with phrases to accompany her thoughtful description of economic policy, which she's been doing in recent times, Annalisa Dodd. Anyway, he prudence with a purpose, or prudence for a purpose, was a very clever phrase. The prudence reassured the kind of wary people in the media and in business, but the purpose was always to bring about social change and to address issues to do with inequality and so on. Uh, you have to manage a party as prime minister. Cameron, who was the most shallow of modern prime ministers, was very good at managing the coalition, uh, kept it on board for five years. Wilson was leading a party split down the middle on all the big issues, but kept the whole thing going rather well, as did Callaghan. So there you go. Uh, there are three values. And there, if you've got a mix of those prime ministers, we might be in a better place than where we are at the moment. So that's, um, that's a good game, Tony. Bit of fun. Thank you for breaking up this podcast with a bit of fun. Uh, Nick Baldwin writes, this is also to do with political leadership. It's why I've put it here. He, he works with businesses and leadership. And he relates it to the current situation, uh, making the point there's an enormous gap in the political marketplace for a post-austerity, post-Brexit and post-Covid recovery plan for the UK. Yet neither Labour or the Tories have articulated one. Johnson's vision was very short term. That, by the way, is another way of describing Johnson, short termist. Get through the next day, get through the next sentence. It's linked to this indifference to consequence. Starmer's big challenge, therefore, this is uh, Nick, he has to spell out a compelling vision of the new Britain that a Labour government would create. He then needs to articulate a strategy to get 
there before he can start telling a story to the electorate. And so he basically, uh, Nick, uh, says that the qualities of leadership will be tested as to whether Starmer can articulate a post-COVID vision and not only articulate it, but link it to a wider strategy and tell the story about it. And uh, yeah, I agree. Talking of which, here's another counterfactual from Gareth Jones. You've discussed Jeremy Corbyn in the past, but I'm wondering whether you think he and his cabinet would have done a better job of handling the pandemic than Johnson's administration had they somehow or other won the last election. Well, it's an interesting question because this government has unquestionably and objectively uh, handled quite pivotal elements of this crisis badly. And in the areas where they've done poorly, such as not locking down early enough last March or in the autumn or at Christmas, uh, Corbyn and McDonald, and I think McDonald, John McDonald would have run the show uh, if Labour had won, uh, would have been much more at ease. They are not libertarians, they are statists. So they would have been much more at ease about the idea of locking down in order to protect lives rather than being in a terrible state about whether you are crushing liberties that shouldn't be crushed. But Jeremy Corbyn would have hated COVID. Um, he is a, a campaigner, a, a kind of romantic campaigner, and responding to COVID is the opposite to that. It's the hard grind of terrible news and responding to new depressing twists and turns and challenges on health and the economy and so on. I think Macdonald would have done more, would have been quite effective actually. I think he would have been an effective administrator. He'd have made mistakes. But anyway, we're in a kind of fantasy world there. Call that a bit more a uh, bit more fun because they were slaughtered in December 2019. Next one. Oh yeah, this is we're talking about uh, uh Boris Johnson and this is interesting. This is from Diana Mercer. And um, she, we were talking on the King's Place stream about the mystery of Boris Johnson's inarticulacy, his hesitant performances at press conferences. Here is someone who is an author and a columnist and at least should be coherent and fluent. And yet, uh, this is interesting. Uh, Johnson is a fascinating figure, I think. Diana says, We were surprised when listening to the repeat of A History of the World in 100 Objects to hear Johnson talking fluently about Augustus. He was wheeled out in one of the empires on empire builders. Ah, yeah. And he may well have been talking his usual load of bollocks, though I doubt whether Neil McGregor would have included his contribution if so. But he did it with confidence and without repetition, hesitation or deviation. Well, yeah, that's a very interesting point. Johnson has a capacity to be fluent, clearly, in these areas where he feels confidently authoritative. And he is obsessed, as we know, by all these people like Augustus, and apparently he's reading again uh, Pericles. Uh, you know, it's these are things that uh, he is confident about talking at great length about. What that suggests to me is his hesitancy when he gives a press conference on COVID 
suggests he's much less confident about this theme. It's not why he wanted to be prime minister. That doesn't mean he's about to pull out far from it. I've got no doubt that unless something extraordinary happens, he will contest the general election as Tory leader. But it does mean that these areas are not ones which he can master speedily or authoritatively, and yet we are all dependent on the decisions he makes. Number 10 are as controlling in this government as the so-called control freaks of new Labour. So he decides, and yet that hesitancy suggests he is struggling with this material. Now, on this front, Sarah Lenton tweeted me, Remember we were analysing why uh, Johnson's hair is such a sort of obvious mess. I suggested that he must kind of do it deliberately. Anyway, Sarah, because if he if, if it wasn't deliberate, he would surely notice. You know, he's vain enough to notice and comb it or whatever you do with that hair. Sarah Lenton tweeted to me saying, My first memory of Johnson at Oxford was as union librarian when he took two goes to become president. He strutted into the union chamber, blonde hair striking, perfectly combed, completely very posh, eloquent and elegant look. Was surprised to see his ruffled buffoonish transformation on Have I Got News For You. So there you go, Sarah. Thank you for that eyewitness report uh, from Oxford when you were the union librarian. Because that does suggest deliberate calculated moves both times he thought the perfectly combed completed very posh eloquent and elegant look worked at the oxford union he must have at some point concluded that the ruffled look from have i got news for you onwards plays its part in his image so there we go thank you while we're on the hair debate and who says we don't tackle the big questions here Venetia Kane offers a theory, which is this really could be a habitual nervous tick. Many men do it, though in most cases it serves to smooth down the coiffure. Johnson really does have the most unfortunately fine hair, and in his case the gesture has the opposite effect. When men's hair was fashionably long, those were the days, she writes, well actually in lockdown, you're going to relive those days, Venetia, with us lot. The uh, hair's going to be fa- unfashionably long again. He probably acquired the tick, passing his fingers through his hair. And that's then consequence was not to calm it down, but to ruffle it up. So there's a kind of innocence to it all. Who knows? Maybe I can't. I did. I wish I'd asked him, actually. I knew him for a bit. Uh, long before he became prime minister. I did a, the old BBC program with him sort of thing because he was so reserved and seemingly shy it's the sort of thing you would never dare ask anyway here's inspiration for all of us from this is venetia's week she has added in the email she was out for four evenings on the trot not illegally out in inverted commas guardian live with michael sandell that would have been good playing bridge you, that was the live stream from King's Place, and then taking part in a Renaissance music workshop. She says she's exhausted, is going to be glad of an evening in tonight. That's how to deal with lockdown. Get out there virtually. Okay, Jeff Strange, having started the lockdown with you in the regular 10K, I'm now reduced to slipper jaunts to the single malt, albeit within government recommended guidelines. What a decline. <laughs> 
the single malt from 10K. Mind you, it sounds more fun, actually, the, the malt. I'd be interested, uh, this is Jeff Strange, I'd be interested to hear your views on where we are on political reporting now. Having watched the American saga unfold these past few months, I've been surprised at the high quality of US news channels and especially CNN. Also, I listen to RTE from Ireland quite a lot and must say that both give space, time and a scalpel-like slice into political events, more so than the BBC. Yeah, well, I, I agree. And I think this raises lots of interesting points, which we should all explore in a podcast or a live show or something. The CNN, I found illuminating the analysis and the comments, but there's no doubt at all they are allowed to express themselves more freely than the BBC. I think in doing so, curiously, they present a more honest account of things. I was a BBC political correspondent for a few years. It was during the whole John Major period when his government was in terrible decline and the rise of new Labour. And I always thought the sort of two-and-a-half-minute, three-minute reports we used to do, uh, strictly balanced, were a curious kind of distortion. And that CNN and being able to express themselves freely, and we all know which side they were on, they were anti-Trump, they were excited about Biden, then gave them the space to cast more light on Biden and Trump. And we could disagree with them or agreeing, but in that process, we got to learn more than you get from a sort of bland, balanced report. That's one thing. The other thing is, there's no doubt at all, the BBC has a bias against letting things breathe on the whole. There are some editors who do. And there was an uh, editor who was at PM who's now moved to the Today programme and she really gave PM the room to breathe on Radio 4 with Evan Davis. It's, it was the best programme, still is, I think, uh, on those daily current affairs. Well, she's now gone to Today. Maybe she will change things a bit there. But, yeah, I think there's a lot to reflect on the CNN coverage compared to here. Now, we are becoming on this podcast the experts on referendums and what's happening in Scotland. And Robin Barnes has written, further thoughts from Edinburgh. He says uh, he shares, uh, oh yeah, he listens to the podcast whilst he says, uh, Robin Barnes says, I share your two recent correspondence enthusiasms for the city's walkability. A couple of people have emailed saying they listen to the podcast walking up Arthur's seat and such like enviable excursions. Uh, Rob is completely different. He's in the depths of a comfortable chair, slow gin within easy reach. So there we go. Uh, enjoy the slow gin. And uh, But God, you've got some great walks in Edinburgh. He says Scottish nationalism uh, is in some ways a misnomer, misnomer because it is in fact internationalism. It derives not from any sense of exceptionalism, of slamming doors and shuttering windows, but a strong desire to engage with others. It's very interesting. He puts the case for the version of Scottish nationalism and then adds at the end, incidentally I write all this as one who for most of his life has voted Conservative. I shall never do so again because that party no longer exists. For myself it's another reason for supporting Scottish independence. The governance of the UK from Westminster is profoundly and irredeemably corrupt. We have to get out from under. 
so there we have it kind of a couple of weeks ago we heard from someone who had always been pro the union but was now going to be voting for independence if they get the chance to do so and here we have now robin a conservative for most of his life who is also going to vote smp and independence given the chance so that's where things are moving at the moment in scotland and westminster has yet to come up with a fully coherent response and again whether johnson fully realizes what's happening in scotland I doubt, and I heard Gordon Brown on the radio saying the same, that he doesn't think Johnson has quite clocked the significance. As I say, short-termism, he won't be thinking ahead to the dramas being played out possibly from May onwards in Scotland. Uh, Les Buchanan writes, I listen on my way to and from my daily swim here in sunny Barcelona. How to make us all feel miserable. Uh, but it's a heated pool, he adds. Well, that makes us more miserable and jealous in some respects. Les is talking about the referendums. We've had a big debate here, for those of you listening to the podcast for the first time, about referendums. I've expressed doubts, but I've been swayed a bit by some of the emails who've put the case for referendums, being more informed and so on. But Les makes a point that I would like to have made when I put my case against I may have missed what to me is the most important point, which is that the UK is a representative democracy. We employ MPs to examine difficult questions in detail and then take decisions on our behalf. If the body politics decides to put the really tough questions back to the people, why employ them at all? There have been references too to the Swiss system. Uh, Somebody wrote in from Switzerland uh, to the podcast saying, you know, that it worked well in Switzerland, the referendums. And he, but this is Les's view. In theory, they can appear rather seductive. In practice, it led to Swiss women being denied the vote until 1971. A referendum in 1957 saw 67% of Swiss men refusing to refusing the opposite sex universal suffrage. So democracy or a version of mob rule. Yeah, well, you've kind of reinforced my original instincts there, Les, that there are huge problems with referendums and their outcomes. And representative democracy might not be going brilliantly these days, but it is, in the end, a more informed way of making decisions than referendums, so far anyway, from our experience. But those examples of Switzerland are a counter to the emailer the last week or the week before who said it was working well in Switzerland. Quite interesting. Now, I think we've kind of uh, done more than those running 5K need. Surely, yeah, if you need 10K, we could have gone on and on. Let me do uh, one more. It's This is from... Dominic Swire. Hi Steve, I hope you're feeling fine. I'm not. I'm completely exhausted today and it's all your fault, my fault. Suffering a rare bout of insomnia last night, I was racking my brains around 2am wondering what I could listen to that might help me to drift off. Naturally, your podcast popped into my head. It is the device for getting people to drift off. Unfortunately, however, I've forgotten how fascinating, thrilling and entertaining it was and thus spent the following 50 minutes lying here fully awake and have suffered the consequences for the rest of the day. So, oh, well, I'm sorry about that, but I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled it kept you awake, actually, and that you're now exhausted. 
One of the questions Dominic asks is to what extent do you think that since the Brexit referendum, the old left-right distinction has been replaced by a new dichotomy of nationalist-internationalists? It seems to me the Tories are the only party so far to accept and capitalise on this, which goes a long way to explain their huge victory. Uh, well, that's if you were thinking that at three in the morning, Dominic, and no wonder you didn't have much sleep. Um, these are deep thoughts. There is a view that uh, left and right has gone as a divide, and it's now Tony Blair calls it open versus closed. Uh, Dominic, in the middle of the night, called it nationalist versus internationalist. Now, there is something in that, but only something. You see, these open versus closed divides, nationalist versus internationalist, it's always been a sub-theme. Look at all the debates that split the Tories in the uh, 19th century, the tariff reform, protectionism versus free trade, a theme, of course, of Brexit. It's always been around uh, this divide between uh, open versus closed. It's nothing new, but it doesn't shove to one side left versus right. So there will be a left versus right post-COVID debate about how you best revive the UK and the level of public spending required for a proper health service, the degree to which uh, the health service is run centrally or is atomized. These are kind of left-right matters. To go back to the beginning, the whole Joe Biden-Neil Kinnock argument about the state placed them on the left. The Thatcher-Reagan argument about the state placed them on the right, and those arguments haven't really gone away. But you're right to suggest the running side by side is a kind of nationalist versus internationalist. And if Keir Starmer needs to wants to win that debate as an internationalist, he's going to have to frame arguments around patriotism being more than inward looking. And there are ways you could do that, I think. But you've got to have that debate and the courage to have it. And uh, silence, which is seems to be his option on these div divides, or draping yourself in a union jack when making any appearance is not actually the way of uh, dealing with it. Well, yeah, we've gone on for, for those of you still running, we've gone on for quite some time. There are some other brilliant questions which we will get to. So thank you for those of you who've sent them in, for those that I've asked and those that have not been asked this week. It's simply because I think that's about enough time. Uh, but do carry on sending them in, making points or adding your questions. I read them all. I will read them out, hopefully, on the podcast or reply to them. The email address, if you're running, I'm reading this out at about 45 minutes in, steverick14 at icloud.com. And don't forget to book for King's Place. It's on Wednesday, February the 17th. Tickets are on sale at the King's Place website. Thank you very much indeed for listening. We've got loads to get through next week as well. God knows where we'll be by then. But see you then. Oh, yeah, by the way, someone tells me if you could leave reviews, that would be fantastic on uh, iTunes and all those kind of things because apparently that um, is just a good thing to happen. I don't understand how the podcast delivery service quite works, but apparently it makes it more available to others. That would be great. One way or another, have a brilliant week. 
See you next week and thank you for tuning in.